We worship in everything we do, in our songs, in our fellowship, we honor our Lord in our time surrounding and, and looking to, learning from, and submitting ourselves under the authority of God's word, we learn. And for us, the scripture is central, it is essential for us. Uh, so I just want to take a moment, if, you, if you're here and you are visiting with us, if you have, don't have a Bible, the Bibles in the, in the chairs in front of you are our gift to you. We would say, take it, it's yours, read it, uh, use it, it will, it, it will write your life, it will write, put your life right side up if you would seek to listen to it, trust it, uh, and then see your life renewed by it. I would encourage you to do that. If you do have a Bible, but you like to follow along electronically, uh, we, we, we strive to meet you as well. Uh, Uversion, the Version Bible app, you can find us on there, and you can follow along with the sermon notes, and you can save those for later so that you can really look at the Scripture and pay attention to what's going on in the sermon. Uh, but you can, all my quotes, all the points that I get, will get made, they're, they're in that, and so if you want to avail yourself of that, you can. The reason I'm taking time to say this is because we are focusing this morning on Scripture, The Word of God, the the Scripture, is the Word that works. We say that a lot. I say that a lot. You hear me say it a lot. I believe it's true. I've seen it happen in my life. I've seen it happen in so many others' lives. Uh, I would encourage you this morning to to open it and read along and let the Word of God do its work in you. We will be in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 as we think and consider further the, the essential doctrines that we hold together as a church. We're going to pick up the same basic topic that we had last week. Last week, we talked about God speaking truth. And I had to make an assumption, but I I, I had a choice. I could either pick scripture first or I could pick truth first, but I I was going to be assuming something one way or the other. And so I decided the best thing to do is to start with truth. God speaks truth. But all along the way, I was assuming that the scripture was God's truth. And there's a reason for that. God has spoken in a number of ways. He has spoken out loud at Mount Sinai. He spoke and the people heard him. When Jesus was baptized, the heavens opened and God spoke. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, he spoke. This is my son with whom I am pleased. Listen to him, he said. He spoke out loud and people heard him. That doesn't happen so much anymore. He spoke through prophets and his apostles, but we don't see them running around anymore. He spoke through his son, Jesus Christ. Every word that Jesus said on earth when he was here was God's word. It was God speaking. Every time Jesus opened his mouth, God spoke. And that's what we saw last week in John chapter 8 when Jesus confronted the lies of the, the, the Jewish people with his truth. But for us, as we interact with God's word, as we look to know God's truth, it is in his scripture. It's in the Bible. We, we, we don't have uh, people running around still bringing new revelation. If they do, I would suggest you should listen to them. Every ounce of revelation, everything that we hear is measured against the, the scripture. Everything that someone says, their perspectives, their If they're saying they have a word of prophecy, which maybe you are familiar with in different traditions, that it still has to be measured against the scripture. You cannot, someone can't come to you and say, hey, God said that Jesus isn't his son. Well, no, he says he is. We we, we can't have that. John, John tells us to test the spirits. Hold on to that which is good. And, and, and so, so we have to have the Bible. So I had to assume it. But today, rather than just assume that the Bible is God's word, we're going to spend some time really looking directly at how God speaks truth through the Bible. So through the scripture, a.k.a. the Bible. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, that's the passage we'll be studying from. We'll read it, I'll pray, and then we'll dig in. So here the word of the Lord says this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Well, Father, this is your word. You've told us, you've shown us that you have revealed yourself in it. You've proven your truth. You've proven your identity. You've shown us who we are in it. 
Help us now. Help us now just to grow in our faith, just to grow in our ability to see it, understand it, and to believe it. That it would then shape and transform our lives and further sanctify us, further make us uh, renew your image in us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's the point. I'm just going to lay it out and we'll, we'll walk through it. But we believe, we believe the Bible is God's inspired and inerrant, powerful and authoritative word through which he accomplishes his work in his people. I think that's the main point that Paul's driving home. Let me say it again. We believe the Bible is God's inspired and inerrant, powerful and authoritative word through which he accomplishes his work in his people. I'll never forget the first time that this was challenged in my own thinking. I, uh, many of you know my story. I've not always been the fine, upstanding citizen standing before you today. I was at one time, uh, uh, I was rebellious. I'll say it like that. That would be about the nicest way I could say it. So I was, I was rebellious. I was an infant throwing a fit. And God was faithful to keep people in my path. Get in the word, get in the word, get in the word. And if, I, if, it, hadn't, if it had been the same people saying it together, I would have think, oh, that's, you know, that did just all agree. But this was different people along different circumstances, different times. Get in the word, get in the word, get in the word. And so finally I listened and I got in the word and I began to read the word. And God, oh man, he showed up and he reoriented my life around him in beautiful and profound ways. But as a result, here my life is changing, and I would go every day. This is, I was still working in aviation at the time. I was an aircraft mechanic for a lot, a lot, of, a whole lot of years, and I was. I would go every day at my break. We would get two breaks a day, and at at, at ten o'clock and three o'clock, I'd go and I'd sit in the corner of the hangar, and I would read from my Bible. I didn't make a big deal out of it. It's like not like I was standing out there. Oh man, it's time to go read my Bible. I would just go into the corner and read my Bible. But it became obvious. People would see me do it over the course of, uh, I think it was six or seven years. They, they, they saw me doing this, and it became very normal for them to see me doing it. And, and it just was the way it was. One day, I was sitting under an airplane. We were, we were doing something uh, on the wings of this airplane. And, and this friend of mine, who is a coworker, is sitting by me. And, and we're working. We're talking. Probably talking more than working. You didn't need to know that. But we were, we were doing stuff. Uh, and he says to me, why do you believe the Bible's true? Why do you believe it's God's word? Now, I'd, I'd been reading it now for a couple of years, and I was becoming very familiar with it, and I really was appreciating it. It was doing a massive, God, through it, was doing a massive work in my life, overhauling my perspectives, the way I perceived, uh, just, just everything about me. He was reshaping. And I had never questioned it that deeply. And that's really not that deeply, but I never I just always had been told that. Like my mom and dad as a child, they did a good job uh, of teaching us this is God's word. And I just never questioned it. So I'm struck in that moment. Well, <laughs> I'm smart enough to not, to, to not say, well, it's true because I believe it. I mean, because if that's the case, if I believe it hard enough, then the, the sky's green, right? Like if I can believe something hard enough, then that's what makes it true. Well, I knew that that didn't add up. And I sat there and we talked a bit and I'm sitting wondering... Well, it sent me on a journey, I don't know, it just sent me searching. It was before the days of Google. This Google wasn't as, it was was around at this time, but you didn't have your phones around, like there was no smartphone. All phones were dumb at that point. It just, we didn't have the access. I didn't have a computer at home at that time. I didn't know, I I was, "Ah, where do I go? What do I do? Well, every day on my ride home, I would listen to a radio show on Bot Radio 90.1, I think is what it was. The radio, or, or the, the Bible answer man, Hank Hanegraaff. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's kind of gone off the deep end on some stuff now. But I listened every day to this guy answer people's questions. Um, and sometimes it was interesting. And, man, he would just, it, sometimes he was kind of like in their face. And that was fun. Probably not the best attitude, but it was still fun. Uh, and and it, I kept listening. Well, I thought, you know, I'll just call him. And so I called. And I got through. And, and, and I asked. Hey, why, why do we believe the Bible's true? Why do we believe it's God's word? And he, he said, well, here, I thought this was a unique question. Like this was, oh man, this is going to stump this guy. He's going to struggle like I'm struggling. He popped off with an acronym, MAPS. And I thought, well, I didn't surprise him. He's been asked this question before. And, and he lays it out. MAPS, manuscripts. M stands for manuscripts. We have more manuscript evidence. There's over 25,000 manuscripts uh, extant manuscripts available to look at the New Testament alone. There's more 
manuscript evidence for the, for, for the reliability of the Bible than any other writing of antiquity. Yet no one questions the writing of other ancient writings. No one questions whether we're reading what was written. 1947, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and, and, and gave us a set of scrolls from before the time of Christ in which we were able to see that the Old Testament had been reliably, reliably recorded before the New Testament began to be written. We were able to discern and see that we are reading 95 to 99%, depending on who you're reading from, accurate words from the Old Testament and New Testament because the manuscript evidence is so clear. And of the differences, none of them make any doctrinal difference. They're more uh, a letter left out or a, like a misspelled word or, or something along that line. Just copy Errors in most cases. So manuscripts. And he said, A, archaeology. Historically, the Bible has proven over and over again to be true. He says, all archaeological digs, if, if, if they're seeking to say that the Bible's false, then they're going to try from archaeological digs to, to, to do it, and they'll, they'll, they'll go with that presupposition, and they'll shape their view. But he said... Basically, and, and I didn't do the research on this, I took his word for it, that, that archaeological digs have demonstrated the, the, the truth or the historical accuracy of the Bible. Now, for you and I, just so we can be honest about this, that doesn't prove it's God's word. It just proves that we're reading historically accurate words that have been uh, recorded or, or, or at least protected. But this next one was where everything changes because there's prophecy in our Bible that no other... No other writing holds, that, that no other um, uh, text that's called sacred in the world holds. They do have prophecy, but they're all self-fulfilling. Like, I'm gonna, I say this is going to happen, and I'm going to go make it happen. God spoke 700 years before Christ was born about the virgin giving birth, and, and lo and behold, 700 years later, a mirac- miraculous event takes place. First off, who in the right mind would say a, a virgin's going to give birth? Because we know that doesn't actually happen 700 years later. Lo and behold, virgin gives birth. Over and over and over, these prophecies are shown to be fulfilled. Christ, just by himself, I think they're, depending on who you read, I think there was one count I read somewhere around, I feel like it's like 600, but that, that number feels high. Hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to Christ, and he fulfilled every last one of them. Prophecy. There must be some divine arrangement and finally, this, this last one, you'll see, he was, he was really working hard to make this an acronym. Uh, you'll, you'll get it as soon as I say it. Science of Statistical Probability. Like, <laughs> you, he was reaching, right? It, it's, actually, it's actually a very important piece of why we would understand that we're reading God's Word is the unity of Scripture. It doesn't, it doesn't contradict itself. All apparent contradictions when you, when you understand the original languages and give the, um, give the same level of benefit of the doubt when you're communicating with anyone else that you would, if you give that same level to uh, the Bible. For example, one author says there was an angel at the tomb and another author says there was two. That's not a contradiction. It just says that one told us there was two and, uh, and one only mentioned one doesn't mean that they were wrong. It just they saw it, they told the story from different perspectives. As you would tell the story differently uh, than I would. But he's talking about the unity of the scripture. That, that is, it's written by over 40 authors over the course of about 2,000 years. But here we are. We can sit down at the beginning and we can read it all the way through. And there is one story from start to finish. God's redemptive work in the world. Moving toward the moment where he makes everything new. One story. We can't even get 12 people to agree in a room about whether someone's guilty or not when we're looking at evidence, at the exact same evidence. And yet, here it is, 40 authors across roughly 2,000 years tell one story from start to finish. Now, this, th- th- these have proved helpful. As, as, I've, as I've walked through life, as I've talked with skeptics, people who have struggled with this themselves or that would seek to question the Bible, these, these points, manuscripts, archaeology, prophecy, science and statistical probability, they proved helpful. It, it, it's part of a conversation I can have. But there is a weakness in looking at the scripture in this way that I would, I would just challenge as, as you're clinging on to those. If, if you're going to use those, I just want you to recognize there is a weakness in them. That weakness is me. That weakness is you. Who am I to assign divinity 
to God's word. You think about this. What I didn't know at the time when this guy was asking me the question was that he, I knew he was Roman Catholic, but what I didn't know was that he was seeking to convert me to Roman Catholicism and he was trying to trip me up and, 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 and make me come to a place where I had to admit that the Roman Catholic Church gave us the Bible. Let me just clear that up right now. The Roman Catholic Church did not give us the Bible. God did. It is his word. John Calvin notes, as a result of this, in the midst of the Reformation, John Calvin notes, only God himself is a sufficient witness to himself. He's the one that determines this is his word. And instead of always looking at all the external evidence, we should let the Bible do the speaking. Let the Bible do the work. I mean, just use this as an example. I, I picked this up out of one of the systematic theologies I've been reading. I can't remember which one. I think it was Michael Horton. Uh, but, but he highlights that when you meet a stranger on the street and you ask to get to know this stranger, you don't doubt every word he says about who he is. In fact, you let him speak for himself about his own identity. Because who's the authority on who he is? He is. And so long as there's nothing in it that would suggest that, it, that there'd be reason to doubt it, then why, why, why would we question it? Why, wouldn't, why would we just listen? Why wouldn't we just accept? The, the reality is some people say, oh, this is circular reasoning. You're depending on the Bible to determine that the Bible's divine. But at some point in every argument, you come to this circular place where the source of authority is the only authority. The source of truth is the only one who can say it's true. Everyone else must listen. And another, another guy, I think it was, uh, I, don't, I don't remember, it's another theolo- systematic theology I was reading through. He highlights the fact that we would look at these people, the, these men who wrote the Bible, and these claims of inspiration in the Bible, and we would suggest that these men are probably good men. I mean, who, who doesn't look at Paul's life and think, oh, well, man, that guy, he's a good guy. Who, who doesn't look at Peter and say, well, he made some mistakes, but Jesus made him good. Could they be good men if they're claiming to be writing divine words? See, we'd have to undermine the whole identity that we've, we've assumed of these people to begin with. We would have to determine that these are evil men doing an evil work, trying to get us to believe something that is not true. See, what, what most of us don't realize, and what most of us don't take time to pay attention to, is that the Bible has plenty to say about its own divinity. Has plenty to say about its own truthfulness. That the Bible by itself is enough. And there's nothing wrong. It is helpful to have these other things to speak to. But if God is dependent upon us to determine that his word is divine, then we have made God subject to us rather than us subject to God. That can't be. In this passage itself, this one we're studying. Paul is either a good man speaking truth or he is an evil man telling us lies. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's good. It's useful. It's profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for, uh, for correction, for, for equipping us, making the man of God ready for every good work. The Bible is God's word. We believe that. We believe it is his inspired and inerrant, powerful and authoritative word that he does his work in his people. Let's walk through it. Let's look at each of these phrases. The Bible, as we call it, as we receive it, the Bible is all scripture. We teach 66 books, 39 old, 27 new. It's all scripture that Paul's referring to. Now, Paul didn't have in mind, he didn't have in mind the the, 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 the Bible as we hold it here today, because some of the books still hadn't been written, but you should know that this letter, that, this, that these words that Paul is writing was one of the last letters that he wrote just before he died. And so many other books had already been written, and he had written many other books. And even in the New Testament, we begin to see that very early on, the church had begun to view these writings as God's word, as Scripture. 
But here we are in 2 Timothy at the end of Paul's life. He's just about to be martyred for his faith. And he is writing this letter to his son in the faith, encouraging him to remember Scripture is breathed out by God. The Bible, as we hold it here today, is what he had in mind, even if he didn't have the fullness of its form able to be highlighted. Now, I'll just say this, just so that I've already brought up Roman Catholics once. I'll just go ahead and say it. We would differ on this with Roman Catholics. They, they hold that there are seven apocryphal books, and then there's a couple of books of the Bible that they've added some chapters in that are apocryphal writings. The, the overarching, the overwhelming evidence is that those Bibles are not Scripture. And also, you'll, you'll see why in just a minute. 66 books, 39 old, 27 new. Well, okay, what does the Bible say? How does the Bible reveal that this is God's word? First, I would point you to Jesus. Jesus references the Old Testament over and over as God's authoritative word. I'm going to list four verses, or three verses for you, I'm sorry, but over and over and over in his ministry, you go and look and he'll say, it is written. He is referring to the scriptures time and time again. But, but just one note, one, one quick place where we can think of and consider this is after he had been baptized, the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness and he begins to, he, he's, he doesn't eat, he fasts for 40 days and then he's tempted by Satan. And Satan comes to him and he tempts him to make bread from a rock. Jesus is hungry. Obviously, he's not eating for 40 days. He's got to be hungry. You can make bread, uh, bread from that rock. And, and Jesus answers him from the Bible. This is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, Matthew 4, 4. He answered, it is written. He didn't go off his gut. He didn't talk about how he felt. He answered the lie. He answered Satan with Scripture, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Next, Satan tempts him to, to, he brings him to the top of the temple and he tempts him, throw yourself off, the angels will protect you. Jesus answers him from Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 13, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then, Satan tempts him, worship me. Worship me and I'll give you everything that you see. And Jesus answers again. It be gone, Satan, for it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Over and over and over again, Jesus, through his ministry, challenges Lies with scripture. He challenges lies and speaks authoritatively from the Old Testament. Peter, he refers to Paul, references Paul as scripture. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, it says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote, notice, wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Peter recognizes Paul's writing with the same perspective as the scripture. And by the way, if you, if you twist and turn them, that is to your detriment as the ignorant and unstable do to their own destruction. He gives them the same weight, the same authority, the same perspective as the other scriptures. Paul. Paul references both the Old and the New Testament as scriptures as he's writing Timothy's first letter when Timothy was in Ephesus and he was giving instruction to see the church brought to order. 1 Timothy 5.18 says, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. This is two different references to two different passages in the scripture. The first is found in Deuteronomy 25.4. Old Testament. It's easy. Okay, I would expect Paul to reference the Old Testament. But he also references Luke 10.7. Paul is referring to the, to the gospel account that Luke wrote. As scripture with authority saying this is the way that it should be 
done. Paul treats both as if they are Scripture. And, and, and then Paul and John both claim inspiration. See, this is a myth. It's a myth that says we've got to look everywhere else but the Bible to determine that there is divine truth or divine claims in the Scripture. It's a myth. You don't have to do it. I don't, and there's a long list that we can point at, but let me just give you two. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 14, 37 through 38, he's dealing with spiritual gifts and, 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 and people's teaching and speaking in tongues and all those things. And, and he says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or, a sp- or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. They come from God. They have been commanded By him, the things I've written to you carry the weight and authority of God. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. What he's suggesting is that if someone disagrees with what I've said, then he's demonstrated he is not with God and he is not with us. He's making a claim to be writing God's word. And here's some others. First Thessalonians, he, he writes about how uh, he, he does it, and then in Second Thessalonians, he write, he references his letter to the Thessalonians, Thess, Thessalonians as Scripture. In Ephesians chapter 3, he speaks about the wisdom that's been revealed to him. And, and as you read this, you're going to be able to discern that God has revealed this stuff to me, that these things I'm telling you are from God. Over and over and over again, Paul stands as one who has authority to write God's word. All right, John. In the book of Revelation, as he introduces the book, it says, Revelation 1, 1 through 2, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. To disagree with what John writes in the book of Revelation is to disagree with the angel who revealed it to him and to disagree with the God who sent the angel to show it to John. He's claiming divine authorship. He is claiming divine source. Here's the reality. These people, these men, they understood to some degree that they were writing God's word down. And they claimed it. They demonstrated it in the way they wrote. Now here's the thing. And this is what's striking to me about, about the Apocrypha and why anyone would continue to try to claim it. That there is one reference in the New Testament. It's in Jude that seems to be a, a quotation or drawn from an apocryphal book. But it's not spoken, it's not used with authority, it's not used as if in some way it is intended to prove to you that, he, that, that Jude is drawing from that as some authoritative source. Everywhere, over and over, through the, through the New Testament, we find Old Testament scriptures, we find New Testament authors referencing each other as authoritative sources for life. You find that in none of the apocryphal books or those chapters that were added by the Roman Catholics. And, and just so you know, there's the, the Eastern Orthodox, there's different apocryphas. Like there's different books added by different traditions, used by different traditions. The big difference between the Roman Catholic and the Protestant Bible was demonstrated in the Protestant Reformation. So the, the Roman Catholic Bible, the reason that they now would say this is all scripture is that at the time of the Reformation, they, their reaction to the Reformation was the Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent, they decided, well, we're going to call it all Scripture. So in, reference, in, in response to the Reformers saying, hey, these aren't Scripture, let's take them out. They're, they're good for us to read. We can learn from them, but they're not God's Word. They said, no, they are God's Word. This is our decision. And so out of a reaction, they decided their doctrine would be that they would hold these non-biblical, non-scriptural books in the canon or in the Bible. But just, just to give you one more bit and piece of information, this is extra biblical, but it will help you see in church history how this is formed out. Melito was an old guy. I mean, wait, he's, not, he's, not, he's really old now. He lived in about the hundreds, uh, and, and he wrote in 170 AD, he had a list of, of Old Testament books, all with the exception of Esther. Our Old Testament matched his. He, he was a Christian man. He was a, 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 a Christian leader, and he, his his list, all the books except for Esther. Athanasius, the, the guy who fought for the divinity of Christ, the Trinitarian doctrine that we hold today, he listed both Old and New Testament books, about 368, 367 A.D., and, and he listed all of the books that we have, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament. I believe, if I remember the reference right, it was minus Esther. 
as well. Esther later was canonized. canonized. We can talk about that another time. One last person, Jerome, the translator of the Latin Vulgate, which is the Catholic's Bible. Right? That's the one that they would point to before they would, they would look at Greek and they would look at the Hebrew, but the Latin Vulgate became their tra- translation. Jerome, who translated it from the original languages, as he wrote them and translated them, he referred to the apocryphal books as books of the church and said they were not books of the canon. He even recognized the distinction. So even the Catholic Church at the Council of Trent was denying their own tradition as, as a reaction. So here we are. We believe, but based not on what these men listed, but we believe based on the testament of the Scripture, on the perspective of those who wrote it, that this is the Scripture. God has breathed this out. This is His Word. The Bible is inspired by God. That is the doctrine of the breathing out. So that's the next phase or the next part of the phrase that Paul writes here. All Scripture is God breathed. He is the source of it. The problem, the, the, we, we talk about being inspired. The problem with the word inspired is it almost sounds like he made people feel really good about it and then they wrote stuff down. Like he inspired them to write these letters. But that is not the, the original word in the Greek speaks to him breathing it out, almost as if he's speaking it himself. We don't want to assume that he required dictation like he sat there and spoke it and Paul wrote it. Although there are instances that that may have happened where, where John is receiving the, the, the instruction from the angel or the, the perspective of the angel or God said, write these things down. But it didn't always happen that way. However, he was intimately involved. God is the source of scripture. He didn't breathe into the words. He breathed out the words. He is the one who is the source of them. So it is right to say that God is the author of the Bible. But in the doctrine of inspiration, we recognize and don't deny that the, that the human capacity or the human personality and the human, the, 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 the human side shines through. Much like if I write on a piece of paper with blue ink or a blue ink pen, you're going to get blue ink. If I write on a piece of paper with black or red ink, you're going to get, but you don't give the pen credit for The words, I'm the author, using the instrument of an ink pen. And while we do hold a special place in God's creation, we are not ink pens. God's apostles, his prophets, those who wrote the scriptures are not ink pens. In contrast to the sovereign divine God, they are simply instruments through whom he worked without denying their own personal personality traits or their own education levels or their own way of speaking and yet he sovereignly presided over the writing of the scripture god breathed out the scripture he is its source peter writing to this very point gives us a little bit of a clue here second peter chapter 1 verses 20 through 21 knowing the, this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation Listen, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit intimately involved with those who write and speak God's word, and he sovereignly enables them to speak truth, sovereignly working through men. Revealing truth so that we would know it. So because God is the source, we, we hold that everything that is written is true. Everything that is written, every word on the page. Now I will say, just to, for the sake of argument, that as we look at our Bibles today, we have had uh, uh, Bible translation companies do us a favor and include headings that give us some synopsis of the of, of, of what's going on in that passage. Uh, back uh, hundreds of years ago, there was, a, 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 I believe it was a monk that sat down and, and, and gave us chapter and verse so we could easily find where we were speaking at and where we're making reference to. Those things are not divine, but every word written in the original autographs were God's words. We call this, this is verbal plenary 
inspiration. I know this is riveting stuff. I know you're so glad that you get to, to be here today, but it's important stuff. Verbal plenary inspiration. The original words, Michael Horton defines that this way, the original words of Scripture were given by the miracle of inspiration and the process of compiling, editing, and preserving the text was superintended by God's providence. Not, not, not only the words, but what they mean. The intent, the original intent, intent is attributed to God more than attributed to the human author. God breathed out these words. He is, the sto- he is the source. Those who wrote them down, the original letters, the autographs, if you will, those who wrote those down were his instruments that he worked through. All right. So we see that the, the, the Bible, as we have it, is all Scripture. We see that the Bible is inspired by God, and we, we, we would hold as a result of that that it is all true. The Bible is inerrant. Now, Paul doesn't speak to this exactly in this passage. He seems to assume it because he's going to tell Timothy to build his life off of it and to build his ministry off of it. I'll show you that in just a minute as we get to the end of the sermon. He's going to to tell him, shape your life around it, live as a result of it, over and over through his writings. He's calling people to it. In Romans 12, he tells them to to have their mind renewed, to to, to, to see their lives uncovered by God's truth, to to, to have their minds renewed by, by the Scripture. Because God's the source of the Scripture. We believe it's true. It's in it's truth. It doesn't have error. As a result of that, we shape our whole life around them. We, we shape our, our, our life as a church around them. That's why I read to you last week this, this opening phrase from our statement of faith. Our standard for truth is God's holy word. Because we believe it is both his inspired and therefore his inerrant word. If he has spoken it and God speaks truth then the Bible is true. That's the logical conclusion. Now here's what we have to admit. We have to say, we have to be honest about. There are differences in some of the manuscripts because copyists have made mistakes. Because people have written things down wrong. Because humans err. God doesn't. But again, 95 to 99%, depending on who you read from, of those errors or of those differences absolutely change the meaning of the text in no way. And the, the most honest translations will always highlight for you when there's something different or some manuscript variant in the manuscripts to say, this is another possibility. We're not doubting the veracity or the truth of God's word as it was written by these men. We're just admitting that that over the years, as all of these 25,000 manuscripts have been copied, that along the way some people made some mistakes. But yet, we're still reading with 95 to 99% accuracy, so we still read his word. We haven't lost it. So this is under attack in our culture today. We want to take parts of the Bible, like I really like this one. I, I really like this p- part of the Bible. Jesus died in my place for my sin. But homosexuality is a sin. Uh, no, no, we don't. We don't no, we, we're, we're smarter than that now. We've, we've moved beyond that. We don't need that verse anymore. Well, you go ahead and do that. And you'll join those that Peter was referring to that were twisting and, 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 and basically... Uh, maligning Paul's writing and to their own destruction. Uh, you'll, you'll be numbering yourself among those people who Paul says they're either with us or they're against us. There is no middle ground. You're either going to accept the Bible or you're going to deny it. There is no middle ground. I can't take a passage that I like and then deny a passage I don't like because then who's to say that the passage I do like is true if I've decided the other one isn't? If it's built upon my opinion, then there is no divine claim anymore. It's my claim. And it's a weak claim. You may not be as simple-minded and as rebellious and sinful as I am, but I got no business telling God what to say or what's true or what's not. I'm either going to submit under his authority in his word 
or I'm going to live by my own. There is no middle ground. But because it's been under attack, it didn't just start in the 2000s. This has been for some time now. Back in the 70s, uh, 1978, in fact, it was under attack. The, the mainline denominations were pushing really hard for the for, for Bible not being God's word, not being true. And so in 1978, over 200 theologians get together, theologians and pastors get together, and they uh, affirm what's called the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. I would encourage you to go read it if you'd like to. I'm going to read you one phrase out of it, the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy, where they affirmed and they denied several truths about God's word. This is what they write. Being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching, no less in what it states about God's act in creation, about the events of world history, about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. If I'm going to count on Jesus' words, the gospel, for my salvation, then I must also agree with God's record of his creation. And his record of, of history as he has revealed it. He didn't show us everything that happened in history, but he showed us some things that happened in history, and I can either agree with them or I can disagree. But we would teach, we would hold as a church, God's word is in error. It is true in what it says. Now, there are points at which the Bible says things. Now, I know it's going to sound like I'm talking out of my mouth, both sides of my mouth. Just hold with me for just a second. There are points at which the Bible does say things that aren't true. For example, Job, when he went through his ordeal, his suffering, he lost everything except his wife, and um, he probably wished he had lost and his life. And he probably wished he had lost his wife or his life, and then that way he wouldn't have to deal with it. But the reality is, he suffered greatly, and as a result, his friends, so-called friends, show up to begin to talk to him. And counsel him. And over and over and over they tell him lies. The Bible accurately recorded those lies. And God showed them to be lies when he showed up. And he said, repent. Who is this that thinks that they can darken my door with the counsel of men? Put your pants on like a man. Stand up. Tell me who you are. That's my, my version. It's essentially the same. That, that's what he said. And he showed them to be in error. Then he demanded, he demanded a sacrifice in response to their lives. But it's accurately recorded. It's recorded the things that they said they did say, but they are lies. When Satan spoke the lies to Eve in the garden. Oh, you're not going to die. That's a lie. He promised death. But it's accurately recorded. The serpent really spoke those lies in the garden. So here's the thing. We can believe what it says. As we look at the scripture, we can seek to understand. In the same way we communicate with one another, right? Like it is God's communication to us through men. He gave it to us. So we're not going to hold it to a standard that we hold nothing else to. When I recognize you're speaking to me tongue in cheek. With, with, with analogy or metaphor, I'm going to seek to understand it in that way. I've just recently been turned on to, thank you, Kara, for, to this group, that, that, this Christian group, Gray Havens, I think the name is. They sing these songs. We couldn't ever sing them in church because they're so poetic and artistic. You, it, it, well, it'd be just hard to sing corporately. But as you listen to their songs, they're, they're artistic, they're poetic, they're, 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 they're super meaningful. But if you don't know the scripture that they're rooted in, you can just miss the fact that they're rooted in scripture because they're not explicitly saying Bible verses. But we were listening to one on the way home last night and it just struck me. This is Paul's story, the ghost of a savior I met on the road that began to burn in me. Paul's story of meeting Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus or or it could be the two, 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 two disciples on the road to Emmaus that met Jesus and as he spoke to them, their hearts burned. This beautiful, poetic, artistic words. And we, and we listen for that. And we're like, oh, it's artistry. It's poetic. If we can understand the Bible in that way, then, then we, can, and we can come to it and understand the truth of it without holding it to a standard that nothing can stand up against because it's only our standard. But see, the, the reality is, is, is God made sure that we could read his word because it is his true word. 
He inspired it. He breathed it out, and he ensures that we can now read it. Next, I would say the Bible corrects and directs God's people. That's the next phrase. Look at it again. All scripture is God breathed, or is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. The Bible corrects and it directs God's people. It shows us error, and it shows us the right way to go. For example, Ephesians 4.28 You get to see this in a snapshot. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands. It shows correction. It teaches us. It shows correction. It shows the error and the right way. These two different paths that every one of us are confronted with all the time. All of these decisions that we make. It it shows us the lies that we believe and shows us the truth we should. And over and over, the scriptures, they don't just show us error and and correction in life. They show us error and correction for salvation. They call us to repent and believe just as Jesus did. Mark 1.15 saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel over and over and over again. The scripture reveals our sin, our need for a savior, and then shows us Jesus Christ as the only way. If we would just trust in him, we would have salvation. The Bible teaches us that if we confess with our mouth, believe in our heart, Jesus Christ is Lord and God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. There is no other name in which we find salvation, only in Jesus. See, the Bible is given to us to to correct us, to direct us, to show us our error, to show us the lies we believe and the truths we need, to show us the, the sins we commit and the and the good works we are called to do. Paul sees this. He understands it, recognizes that God's true word was given to us for this purpose, to teach us, to correct us, to direct us, to, to train us in righteousness, to, that we would be able to imitate God in life. It, it, it shows us that over and over again. And then finally, I would point to you, That the Bible sufficiently equips God's people. Sufficiently equips us. Look at how he finishes verse 17. That the man of God may be complete. Who who, who of us doesn't want to be complete? Like who? None of us like the the idea of, of limping around just barely making it, right? Like who doesn't want this to be said of them? Completeness. Perfection. This this finished product. It makes us complete, equipped for every good work. This is why God breathed out the scriptures. This is for the, the reason for which he spoke it through these people so that you and I, so that his people could be equipped and made equipped or, or so that we could be made complete and equipped for every good work. The, the, the scripture doesn't tell us all the truth that there is to know. Right? Like, you can't flip open the Bible and determine if there was Russian collusion in the election or not. Right? You're not going to get that. There's plenty of people that are talking about that today. And what's it going to matter tomorrow whether there was or wasn't? Is it really going to shape and change our lives in the same way that the Scripture does? Absolutely not. It, it, I, I'm, not, I'm, not I'm not trying to be down on education, but, but, but it's not going to teach us how, how to write in English or do our times tables. We're not going to find that truth here. There's not all the truth that can be found here, but the most pertinent truth. The truth that matters more than any other truth. He's made sure that it's been spoken, that it's been recorded in the scriptures so that you and I could know it, so that we could be sufficiently equipped, so that we could be made complete, and that we could live and do the good works that he's called us to do. Let me just illustrate this for you. Go back to the passage. In in, in 2 Timothy, you just slip up just two verses. But as for you, this is Paul writing to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. That's the scripture. With the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, you're, you're... Unless you're trying to go into ministry, you're probably not going to get a job if your education is in the Scripture. 
You probably need to go to school and, and get an education so that you can at least go to McDonald's and get a job. I mean, they want you to be able to read. They want you to be basic education. You, you need that. But, 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 but don't dismiss this. More than you need the next air you breathe, the, the next drink you could take, the next meal you eat, you need to know the Savior of our souls. You need to be made wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. There is only one place you'll find that in this world, and it is in God's inerrant, inspired, powerful, and authoritative word, his scripture, the Bible. And it doesn't just, it, it doesn't just mean something for me individually. It's not something I just take in and, and, and just appreciate. Yes, I do. I hope you do. If you've never trusted in Christ, I hope you'll look into his word and be convinced that salvation is in Jesus Christ. But, but it doesn't end with what he does in me. It, 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 it progresses to what he does through me. Look at the passage that immediately follows this. In chapter 4, verse 1, immediately after the end of verse 17 of chapter 3, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Preach it. Don't just believe it. Don't just look into it. See yourself saved. Stand up and do your ministry by it. Let it shape how you interact with people. Let it shape what you say to people. Make his word known. Preach the word. There's a strong charge to that. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. They're on my side, he says. They're, they're sending me to this, he says. Preach his word. See, Paul knows that not, not only do I need them, you need them. And not only do you need them, those you know need them. This is God's word. It is His truth for mankind that we can be trained, that we can be taught, trained in righteousness, that we can be rebuked and corrected so that we can be made complete, equipped for every good work. Michael Horton highlights in his systematic theology the scriptures are not only a record of redemption, but are themselves the primary means of grace through which the Spirit applies redemption to sinners in the present. Brothers and sisters, it's time we, we, we quit seeking to defend the Bible and just believe it enough that not only would we be saved, but that we would preach. The Word will do the work. It is sufficient. To accomplish God's purposes in his people. All scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching. For reproof. For correction. For training in righteousness. That the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Our world doesn't need you and your wit and wisdom. Although I know some of you are pretty witty. Our world needs God's word. Spoken a lot, with complete patience, in season and out of season, that passage goes on to say. Because it is God's true word that God intends to do his true work through. All right, let's pray.